Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Excavators dig into the earth where the Notex once had their fire pit. Just four feet below the dirt, investigators find the plastic that was removed from one of the construction sites that Dave Notech worked at. Ron's decomposing body lay in the middle of it all. Back at Pacific County Deputy Sheriff's Office sat the recently arrested Dave and Shelley Notech. One cave telling the deputies everything they needed to know the other refusing to share even one word to help the prosecutors in their quest to build a case against the Notex. Two out of three sisters sat watching the headlines roll across the television screen. Their secret was out. The world knew just who their parents were, and they couldn't help but wonder if they had done the right thing. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. The last two weeks, we have listened to the horrific story of what life was like with Shelley Notek, a husband choosing to be blind to his wife's actions that were going on at home behind his back, one daughter removing her parents like a parasitic tumor sucking the life from her, another balancing on the line of being free and pleasing her mother, and the third, living a lie that only the masterful Stephen King could conjure up in the depths of his mind. Two notches mark the tally board of murders on Shelley's death count, and now she has the possibility of adding two more. Warning, this episode depicts graphic detail of abuse, murder, adult situations, and language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel that any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, everybody. Tonight, we are going to close out the case of Shelley Notek and the monstrous abuse that she put out in anybody who walked into her home. Last week, we discussed how Shelley was able to manipulate Dave into killing her nephew, Shane, um, because she feared that he would roll over on the family after she had tortured her best friend, Kathy Loreno to her death. We keep looking at this and somebody commented on um, last week's episode and they described it perfectly. It's like looking at a car crash. You know you should look away, but you can't. And the more we get into this case with Shelly, the more focused in you become on all the graphic details. And it's hard not to be just encompassed in all of it because 
you can't believe that there is a person out there that is capable of doing what Shelly has done in all of her years in the battleground in Raymond area. You can't believe that so many people have fallen victim to her and her manipulative ways. And then she starts abusing people and she pushes and she pushes and she pushes because it's not so much that it's a punishment because the person being abused is being a bad person. This is entertainment for her. And the harsher the punishment, the more entertainment she gets. So this week we are going to pick up where Ron Woodworth is currently living at the home. And he has begun his journey in the torture that is Shelly Notek. And Sammy is back at home. She had told her mother that if she would fix what she had done to sabotage Sammy from getting into college, that Sammy would come home. Now, the oldest daughter, Nikki, she's just like, I'm done. I'm writing you off. Please don't ever contact me. But Shelly only contacts her when it's beneficial to Shelly. So Nikki's okay with that. And at this point, she's moving on with life, or at least trying to. And Sammy, she's teetering that line of, being free of her mother and pleasing her. Sammy, I don't want to call her a sucker because she's not, but she absolutely could not stand the thought of not having her mom because she loved her mom, but she also knew that her mother was no good for her. And at this point, Sammy's old enough that Shelly hasn't so much abused her as she's just manipulated her into doing what she wants her to do. Uh, and then we have Tori. And at this point, Tori's 12. And she has really attached herself to Ron. He's became an uncle to her and she loves him. And she is having a really hard time watching her mother do the things that she's doing to Ron. And Sammy is just trying to get through college. She's just trying to make it to the point that she's her own adult. And she has nowhere else to go but out in the world without her mother. As Sammy is home from class one day, a Pacific County Sheriff's cruiser pulls into the Monahone Landing home. And it's at this point that Sammy's like, they know. They know. Nikki told, they've been trying to get a hold of me. I haven't called them back because I'm not really sure if I'm ready to put that out there about my mother. And they're here. They know. And she amps herself up with so much adrenaline that by the time she figures out that the only reason they're there is to serve Ron some papers, she crashes hard from that and she takes off and she breaks and she cries. And her mother, doing a, one of the only handful of times she's been a human, goes in and comforts her daughter. And Sammy wants it to be over. She just doesn't want to be the person to cause it to be over. Not yet. She's not there yet. Shelly hasn't pushed her that far. But Shelly is confident that her story about Kathy and running away with this love of her life truck driver, Rocky, she's confident that it's, it's selling, that nobody knows. Nobody's second guessing her. And Shane, he, you know, he's in Alaska. She's got two 
perfect stories. And she's using them to their full potential. Ron was working like a horse around the home. He was doing everything that Shelly wanted him to do. And Shelly behind Ron's back was telling her daughters, you know, she didn't intend for Ron to stay this long. He's overstayed his welcome. He needs to go, is what she tells Sammy. And Sammy can't understand, well, if he needs to go, Mom, why don't you kick him out? But to Ron's face, that's a different story. Shelly's going to help him get better. He's not good right now, and she's going to make him better. At least that's what she's telling him. Ron at this point is down to just a couple tank tops and a really short pair of shorts that he is working around the home in. He isn't stripped completely of his clothing, and I'd like to think because in Shelly's mind, she knows he is a different gender. And with Tori being as young as she is, that if somebody saw an adult male walking around the property with no clothing on, something would be said. So because Ron is a male, he gets to keep a couple outfits. And Shelly doesn't get to fully humiliate him like she did with Kathy. At one point, she does completely take away the shorts and the TikToks and has decided that his underwear is good enough to cover him. And when he asks for his clothing back, Shelly screams at him, you know, you don't deserve clothes. You're a worthless human being. You're a fag. You're this, that, and the other. And let me reiterate, when I use the word fag, it is because of her. She calls Ron this continuously throughout the abuse and it does not stand for anything that I do but this is what she uses and I don't want anyone to reflect that back onto me she is she will say and do anything she can that she feels will strip you of that that little bit of mm, what's the word I'm looking for confidence that you have and with Ron being a gay man in the early 2000s, you know, we're, we're just now seeing the beginning of the movement of the LBGT and we're watching society change and become far more acceptant of that lifestyle. But for Ron, living in the no-tech home and never really leaving the property he doesn't get to see the beginning of this, this movement. He doesn't get to partake in it. He doesn't benefit from it. He lives his every day. He lives life being called a bag. Ron was allowed to eat, um, but he had to eat in his bedroom alone after working outside in long hours. Now, before when I, when I described Ron's bedroom to you, he had a dresser and a nightstand and a lamp and a bed and a mattress. Ron, at this point in his bedroom, has no furniture, nothing. He has a blanket that he sleeps with on the floor, and that's it. And he's only allowed to sleep in his bedroom when Shelly deems that he has been good enough for that day to sleep in his bedroom. There's been times that she makes him crawl underneath the computer desk, which if you can kind of think of uh, the desk that sits in the Oval Office, it's got just that narrow spaceway for you to scoot your legs up under and set at the desk properly. That's how this desk gets set up. Ron is not a 
slender man. He was heavier set. Um, he was older, so he's not as limber as he once was in his younger years. And he is being forced to cramp up into this fetal-like position in order to fit into this narrow opening underneath the desk. And he has to sleep like that when Shelley's decided that he's been this horrendous person for the day. I don't get her way of thinking, but poor Ron was... In some instances, I feel like he was tortured worse. But in others, the abuse that Kathy endured went on longer because she was younger. So, I don't know. If Ron made any noise during the night, he was going to be punished. And poor Tori, she was like a Pavlovian dog if she remained absolutely silent. Silent, you know, if she heard her mother screaming, she that was like a signal for her to shut down, don't move, don't breathe, don't say anything, just be still. And that's how Tori had been conditioned from a very young age. You know, she she wasn't old enough to remember what life was like for Nikki or Shane. She kind of saw some of it with Sammy. But at this point, Nikki's gone. Nikki left her. Nikki doesn't love her. Nikki's a horrible sister. And then there's Sammy. And Tori looks forward to Sammy coming home on the weekends from college. Um, because that's the only connection she has besides her mother and poor Ron. Uh, her dad's not coming home at this point. He's just mailing his check home. He's realized my wife doesn't want anything to do with me. She wants my paycheck. So he's like, I'll mail that home to her. I just stay clear, you know. And you can't blame him. I would say man up, file for divorce. Um, but if you look at pictures of Dave Notek, you can see in his eyes he's just been beaten down to the point that he, there's no fight left in him. So he doesn't stand up to Shelly. He just, here's my paycheck. I'll, you know, talk to you again in two weeks, whatever. Tori made the mistake of standing up for Ron to her mother one day. And in the end of it, Ron was made to tell Tori that he didn't love the little girl anymore, that their relationship meant nothing to him. And in comparison, you remember Sammy, how, how attached she became to Kathy. If Kathy was put in worse conditions, she tried to brighten it up. She absolutely adored the necklace that she got from Kathy, but she got her ass beat when she told her mother that because God forbid you like anything more than you like what you got from your mom. That's where Tori is with Ron. She has this relationship. And because Tori stood up to her mother for Ron, now Ron has been forced to tell Tori that essentially she means nothing to him. But in the end, he is saying this to her. Not to hurt her, but to hopefully save her from some of the abuse that could come from Shelly because she does have this connection with Braun. And it's just, it's awful to hear about. It's awful to hear how he tells this little girl, she's, you know, 12, 13 years old. I don't love you. You do not mean the same to me as I mean the same to you. I don't know why you're around me. I don't know why you like me. Those are words that that you shouldn't, that no adult should be saying to a child. I mean, I can get it if there's some boundaries being crossed, but with Tori and Ron, there was no boundaries being crossed. It was simply, you are family to me. You mean something to me because I feel like you are part of my family. 
and and Shelly broke it because she could, because it was funny. No matter how Ron spoke to her that evening, he still showed Tori moments that she knew she meant something to him. They still shared these unbreakable bonds, these silent emotional moments between one another where they were both simply trying to help the other survive until the next day. Sammy played this part where she was just in the middle and she was pulled from two different directions. I mean, she made the deal with the devil, so to speak, when she told her mom that she would come home if Shelly fixed what she had sabotaged in the first place. But then she saw and knew what her mother was capable of. She watched Kathy go from this bright, full of life, cheerful person to a person who, who couldn't even hold two pieces of string and put them together. And she was watching Ron declining. He was going faster than what Kathy had. Shelly knew what she, she had tried and true with Kathy. She knew what was going to work. And therefore, she did faster damage to Ron because he was older and because she knew how to tear him down the quickest. Nikki found out what her mother was doing, even with her promise to really never darken the front door of that home anymore. She was going to stand up this time and and Shelly couldn't hurt her anymore. Nikki called her mother and Shelly didn't answer. So she left her a message saying, quote, I know there's a man living there and you need to get him out of the house before history repeats itself, end quote. Shelly, the one to ever smooth things over, she calls Nikki almost instantly back and she's just like, no, you know, Ron's just a family friend. He adores Tori. There's nothing going on. He just needed a safe place to stay. You know, he had this awful mother and his partner left him after many years together in a relationship. You know, he's just, I'm just helping him out. There's nothing going wrong. But what Shelly doesn't realize is that Sammy and Nikki have a relationship outside of that house. And Sammy has been talking to Nikki and Nikki knows she's not dumb. And now she's old enough that she doesn't have to be afraid of her mother anymore. She can stand up. She can say something and she doesn't have to worry about the repercussions. Eventually, Sammy tells Nikki virtually the same story that her mother told her. You know, she takes back the fact that Ron's deteriorating. She's like, oh, no, he's fine. It's it's fine. I, I had misread this situation. But I don't know how you misread something like that. That's not a, that's not a, you know, you just don't. He physically looks different than he did when he first moved in with you. He has nothing to his name living at Shelly Notek's house. A pair of underwear. He can't even go to the restroom when he needs to. That's all he has. Sammy sees this and yet she still sides with her mother because she's not really sure where she quite stands just this. And it's not, I don't want this to be negative on Sammy in any way. What she lived through and what she overcame is so tremendous that I couldn't even begin to 
comprehend. So I don't blame her for for being, you know, this wishy-washy. You know, she wants her mother to be better and she's scared of what will happen if Nikki goes back to the police department. She doesn't want her mother to go to jail, but she doesn't want her mother to continue doing what she's doing now. So she's torn. She's having this internal struggle and you can't blame her for that. She, you know, she's a, she's a daughter who wants a mother so she can have that unbreakable relationship and um, everlasting love that just that connection that some mothers and daughters have. She wants that so bad that she's willing to kind of overlook some of this stuff that Shelly is doing, but it's only for a little bit. So, you know, we've got Sammy now on Shelly's side, but here's the thing. They have this little sister, Tori, still at home, still under the care of her mother. And the difference between Tori, Sammy, and Nikki is Tori's going to stand up and she's going to say something. Because she's not scared of her mother as much as the other girls are. Or she's just that strong-willed that she's not going to sit around and watch something like this happen. So Tori is talking to her mother uh, you know, why are you treating Ron this way? Why why is this happening? Sammy's trying to cover up, but she slips. And she says something about Ron being in the yard without any shoes on. Well, Nikki, she knows. Well, in, in a sense, she had to know that after Sammy came back and was like, oh, I misread the situation. She had to have known that that is Shelly coming out through Sammy. But then she let it go because it's hard to force something like that onto another human being. And Nikki's not that kind of person. She's not going to force Sammy to hate her mother. So she just lets it go. But now Ron has no shoes on. He's doing chores outside. Things are starting to repeat. And Nikki's sixth sense about all of this is starting to perk up. Well, guess what? So is Dave's. And at this point, Dave starts coming home more and more. And as he sees Ron, he notices the rapid decline in his condition. And he knows his wife is going to murder him by torture. She is going to do this again. And he is going to be left to clean up the mess, so to speak. And so Dave tells his wife to go buy Ron another pair of shoes, okay? Shelly says she's not going to waste money on Ron. She's not going to buy him another pair of shoes. Why? Because he keeps losing them. He's not a four-year-old child. He's older than Shelly, and she refuses to buy him shoes because he loses them. What adult believes another adult is losing their shoes? He's obviously not deprived mentally in his health condition just yet. He's still very, you know, he knows what day it is. He answers Shelly in the manner he is supposed to answer Shelly, which is, yes, Shelly dear, which absolutely makes my skin crawl. But he's not 
to the point where there's dementia or there's abuse that has caused some sort of mental functioning that has declined. He's not there yet. And Dave, he refuses to push the subject anymore. He says one thing about it one time and that's it. He's like, oh, Shelly's right. You know, shame on me. I shouldn't have questioned my ever knowing wife. Like Kathy and Shane, Ron also attempts to make runs for it. He, you know, he takes off. And I wish I could say every time I saw that he ran away secretly deep inside, I was hoping this is the time he got away. And I did that with Kathy too. I mean, I wanted it to be a happy thing for them. I wanted them to get away from her. But, you know, Shelly, she likes to hunt people down and so guess what she loads Tori up and they take off after Ron and Tori questions her mother she's like you know if you don't like having him around why are we out trying to make him come back home and Shelly's quick she's like if he gets away and they see the marks on his body He's going to say, he's going to lie and say, I did that to him. And we can't have that because, you know, that's going to tear our family apart. I mean, in the end, what we're looking at is Shelly refuses to go down for what she is doing to other people. She just is not. No, I mean, the marks on their bodies tell the story in the depth that anyone needs to know. You can look at him and you can see that he is being an abused. He's not, you know, we live in the early 2000s. There, we don't have slavery. Yet that's what he is to her. Ron was always found because he had nowhere to go. Remember, Shelley made him write these god-awful, hateful letters to his mother, to his brother, to his sister-in-law, to anybody that Ron possibly could have gone and seeked help with. She made him cut them out of his life by saying these god-awful things and then she got the family on his side and Shelly's some um, you know she's just so smart and so kind Shelly's punishments they keep getting further and further and further away from the realm of normalcy and I'm there's not even a really normal way for this I mean I guess if you're going to punish a child it would be you know you're grounded kind of thing. Give me your electronics, whatever. With an adult, that's really kind of hard to say that there is any kind of any normal punishment from one adult to another. Um, that just doesn't make any sense. But at this point, she is disciplining her youngest in the weirdest ways. Okay. Last week, I had told y'all about Tori going through puberty and Shelly making Tori come in and let Shelly evaluate the way her body is changing. So she was made to strip completely naked. Sometimes it was just her top and other times it was head to toe, no clothing. And then, you know, she got a kick out of the fact that she talked Tori into going and cutting away some of her pubic hair for her quote unquote baby book. Ugh. So now Tori is getting these weird punishments. Shelly finds an axe that was left out overnight and she screams at Tori that she didn't put it away. 
So you know what she makes her do? She makes her shove the handle of the axe down her pants and into her shoe. And then Shelly tells her, that is how you are going to do this day's chores. And if I see you without that axe handle in your pants, well, things are going to get really bad for you. So Tori does her chores without ever removing the axe. Another time, Tori is, she had forgot to take the trash out. And I don't know about y'all, but my kids forget to take the trash out all the time, okay? It's nothing new. I, I don't do anything even remotely close to this. But I also don't think like Shelly. So Tori goes into her room and she notices that her bed, which was made and everything was flat, is now got something up underneath it and when she pulls the covers back her inkling was right she was like I think I forgot to take the trash out and I'm wondering and there it is the entire contents of the trash can in her bed and then Shelly pulled the blanket back up over it. Shelly had a different idea of hygiene when it came to everyone other than herself. I'm sure Shelly would draw herself a nice warm bath and she would go and she would sulk and, 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 you know, just enjoy the experience. But for Tori and Ron, it was different. They were made to shower outside with the garden hose. And Tori even says there's a time when her mother turned the pressure washer on her. And I couldn't even imagine what that would feel like being ran across my body as as a way it's cold water it's got to be pins and needles I, mm, I don't even want to put myself in that position to even think like that it just makes my skin crawl but that's how those two were forced to take care of themselves as far as the hygiene went Tori's was taken a little bit further Tori says that she could have shook her underwear out at any given time and the amount of powder that shook away from the fabric would be far too much. And this powder was Gold Bond antibacterial powder. And she was forced to put it in her underwear almost daily. And there was even a few times that Shelly actually made her put the powder inside of her vagina. And it didn't matter how many times she cried out and, and told her mom she wants you, it burns, it hurts. And, you know, she would cry actual tears from pain. Shelly made her do it. You know, she either did the, you don't want to get an infection down there or, you know, Nikki and Sammy did it. What's wrong with you? Just buck up and do what I tell you to. Um, but Tori was a little bit more hard-headed and she had something to say every time she felt that what she was doing was not right. It was weird. And she would say something to her mom. Ron was no stranger to humiliation. Shelly would call him disgusting and fat and gay and a fag and whatever else just popped up into her mind during the time of this parade of hurtful words. And Tori, she didn't see Ron that way. You know, she saw Ron as this really nice guy. He was caring. He loved her. You know, he had this great outlook on life, but not anymore. Tori can't remember the last time he laughed. The last time he woke up and was excited about the day and the and about what there was to be offered. You know, the Ron she knew, the Ron she met, the Ron that became her uncle was no longer there. It was just this shell. 
and Shelly was there to beat him down. And Ron, he loved Egyptology, and he loved the gods, and he loved just the culture that came from it. And Shelly used that against him. That's how she manipulated him into doing things that she wanted him to do for her. You know, he was being bad. He was displeasing the gods. You know, if he wanted to please them, then he needed to do this for Shelly. And he did everything she asked. And again, he said these words that make my skin crawl. Yes, Shelly, dear. You know, it makes me think of Joan Crawford and Mommy Dearest. Ugh, oh my, just, I can't. You know, wire hanger. Oh my God. Now enters a new person into Shelly's life. His name is James McClintock. He's known as Mac to family and friends. And Shelly and Ron are taking care of him. Now, here's the thing that gets me about Mac. Mac is a close family friend of Kathy Loreno's mother. And how Shelly came to be taking care of Mac is not completely clear. I cannot find how that came about. I'm assuming it came from the social work business that she had done there right when she met Ron. I want to say that that's how she developed this relationship with Mac because Mac is old enough that he needs assistance at home taking care of himself. He is elderly. He's getting up there in the years. He's refusing to go to a nursing home because the man loves his whiskey. He loves woodworking, but more than anything, he loves his black lab sissy and if Sissy couldn't go, he wasn't going. So instead, Ron and Shelly were coming over and helping him take care of himself. You know, helping him with his meals, helping him get around the house, helping him, you know, keep the house clean, do his laundry, things like that. Things that become very difficult the older you become. Now, Shelly brags to everyone about Mac being the father that she never had, okay? I don't know how many of y'all are with me from episode one, but I'm going to say that if you haven't listened to episode one, please go back and listen because Shelly had a dad. Shelly didn't grow up without her father. Shelly tormented her father and made her father's life a living hell unless he did what she wanted him to do. Okay. So for her to be running around town and saying, Mac is this dad I've never had, it's complete and utter bullshit. She had a really good dad. She screwed that relationship up on her own. But now she's got Mac. And if you dared question the relationship between Shelly and Mac, she was going to set you right. Because she genuinely did her job with him. She took care of him. And you can sit there and you can say that she had some connection um, spiritually or, you know, whatever you want to say. I'm sitting here and I'm going to tell you that the only reason she took care of Mac the way she did is because he had something she wanted. Shelly never did for others unless she could benefit from it at some point in time. You know, she took Kathy in and when she first took Kathy in, it was because it was going to help her because she was, you know, having cancer, cancer treatments done and she was pregnant with Tori. And then once she got all that she could out of Kathy, then she started to beat her down for enjoyment. 
she moved Ron in because, she, you know, he could help around the house because Dave wasn't coming home because he was buried in work trying to maintain the finances of the no-tax. But, you know, Shelly's at home just willing and dilling and not paying the bills like she's supposed to be. And then once she gets all she can out of Ron, well, now it's time to beat him down too. Well, now there's Mac. And if he could have lived long enough for her to milk him for everything that she could get out of him, I'm sure there had been a period where she would have beat him down as well. But, you know, Tori developed a relationship with Mac, much as like she did with Ron. And for Tori, it was a grandfather for her. Because by this time, Shelly didn't have a relationship with her father. And if I can remember correctly, and I usually never fell like this in my research. I want to say that Les had passed away either shortly after all of this or shortly before it all. I want to say it was in 2004, which would have been after all of this. So Tori never really technically had a grandfather per se because his relation less in Shelley's relationship was just strained but now here's Mac and she has this nice guy who's older than her mom her mother tells everybody who will listen that he's like a father she never had so for Tori he became another member of her family she had her mother she had her father she had Sammy she had Uncle Ron, and now she had a Grandpa Mac. And she loved him. She adored him just as well. And it came to a point that Mac was needing more assistance, and Shelly knew the perfect way to help him out. He was going to move Ron into Mac's home. Now, Mac is a survivor of Pearl Harbor, okay? He fought in World War II, served his country great. He lived a very comfortable lifestyle afterwards. He was not part of the generation that was acceptance to Ron's lifestyle, okay? Nothing against him. Really, you can't. That was just the way he was raised. You can't berate him for that. He lived during an era and served our country during an era where it was a don't ask, don't tell. They don't want to know. They don't care. Keep your mouth shut and do what you need to do. But they didn't see eye to eye on that part of Ron's life. So when Shelly told Mac that Ron was moving in, he was not happy. He, he didn't want Ron there. But Shelly assured him with Ron being there that Mac would get better care. And it would be better and easier on him in the long run. Now, Mac had a home pretty much to himself. It was just him and his dog, Sissy. So there was plenty of rooms for Ron to move into. However, Ron did not move into any one of the free bedrooms in Mac's house. Instead, he moved into a little hole in the wall in the basement that resembled more of a jail cell than it did a bedroom. And he only had a blanket when he was in there. Shelly made sure that when he left her house and he went to Max, he was not going to get something over there that he wouldn't have got at Shelly's. No, the, the level of abuse was going to continue no matter where he lived, no matter which house he was living in. She was going to control Ron there as much as she would have at home. 
Now, like I said, Shelly wouldn't have done for Mac had there not been something for her to gain from in the whole process, right? Okay, so at some point, she sinks her claws deep into Mac and Laura and Nikki learn of this and they both know what Shelly is doing. She is setting it up to where when Mac dies, she will get his estate, his money, and his home, okay? Which is all fine and dandy. Cool. Well, here's the kicker. Shelly only gets his estate after his black lab sissy dies. If, Mac, if something happens to Mac, then his estate, his money, his home, all of it is tied up with his dog. And then when his dog passes away, then it goes to Shelly. Okay. So Laura and Nikki know what their mother are doing. They know Mac has a home. They know Mac has a little bit of money and Shelly wants it. This is her way out of debt. This is going to allow her to go shopping and do the things that she loves to do. You know, other than having a job and being a parent. Max it, max her ticket to financial security, at least for a little bit. With Ron living with Mac at this point, it only means that Mac may pass away sooner than what a natural cause would have caused him to pass away. Does that make sense? Let me explain what I'm saying. They know that with Ron living there, Mac's death is more imminent then had Ron not been there and Mac die of just natural causes. It's just a matter of time of when he dies, how he dies, and who's there to witness it. On September 7, 2001, Shelley was named the power of attorney for Mac's estate. She had it. It was on paper now. She was going to inherit Mac's estate after his dog Sissy passed away. With the Notex financials being as jumbled and cooked as they were, Dave was shocked when Shelly called and said that he needed to ask for an advance on his wages. He thought, you know, his beautiful bride was at home managing the money appropriately. She was not. So when he could not get an advance, Shelly did the only thing she could think of. She applied for a payday loan. And if any of you have ever had one of these, these are loans that have astronomical interest rates in them. By the time you get done paying the loan back, typically you're paying three times what you were given in the loan. It's, it's really hard to get out of them once you get underneath them. And Shelly was entering her and Dave into this. On the application, she said between the two of them, they were bringing home $3,500 a month. Now, if you bring $3,500 home a month today, you are going to live not comfortably per se, but you are going to be able to live better than most people, okay? And that's just a one paycheck household. Imagine what it can be if it was two of you. So now let's go back to 2001, $3,500 a month is a lot of money during that time. Dave decides after Shelly asked him to get an advance on his wages that he needs to go home. He needs to see what the hell is going on back at his house. So again, he went from not going home for almost a year 
to increasing to increasing his trips home more and now he's decided I need to come home even more frequent and so he knows he he's in his mind he's thinking we've got away with murder twice what's the chances of us getting away with it for a third or fourth time he has to go home he has to see if he can stop what he knows is coming because whether he realizes it or not his wife is becoming a serial killer right in front of his eyes Dave's presence at home was not what it should have been instead of coming home and handling his household he came home and fell into the manipulation of his wife and Dave began to beat Ron as well one instance was when Shelley said that Ron had taken a crap in the yard. Now, from last week's episode, you'll remember that apparently Kathy had done something similar, only it was inside of a Tupperware bowl inside the kitchen. Well, Shelley doesn't seem to understand why they cannot hold it. But we talked about this. It's really hard for one to judge how another's restroom habits should go they they don't aren't getting the cues from their body to say hey ron needs to go to the bathroom she's like nah you can hold it just hold it keep holding it nope hold it some more you know and so dave goes out and he punishes ron without really knowing whether or not the infraction occurred he just goes out there and beats him and tells him, you know, don't crap in the yard. What are you, an animal? Well, I mean, that's the way his wife is treating them. But at this point, Ron's abuse is getting worse and worse. And whether it was directly from Shelly or Dave or even himself, because now Shelly has Ron turned into a puppet. She screams at him that he has to learn. He has to learn. And to hit himself harder and harder and harder in the face. And Ron stands there and he hits himself as hard as he can over and over and over. As Shelly stands there screaming at him, you have to learn. Hit yourself again. Do it harder. You're not hitting yourself hard enough. And Ron does it. With Tori not being like her older sister's, she speaks up against her mother all the time, and she is having a really hard time believing that Ron was nothing more than an ungrateful house guest who stayed way past his welcome. And now he was going to pay his way doing what Shelly said, always using the phrase, yes, Shelly, dear. Even down to the point that Tori watches him drink a cup of his own urine but Shelly tells him, you are going to drink that urine for using the restroom without my permission. Now, Tori cannot believe what she watches happen next. Ron obviously does not want to do this. He puts the cup to his mouth, tips the cup up, and drinks it all as fast as he can. He had failed to remember what Tori had taught him. Tori had showed him in the last episode when she caught a bottle of his urine in a Windex bottle. And it was, if you want to do this, okay, cool. But you have to get rid of it. And Ron forgot to pour his cup of urine out that morning and he got caught. 
And Tori could not believe that he would forget to do something so important. And for me and you, we can't think of a reason why we should have to pee in a cup in the middle of the night. We have to get up and use the restroom. We get up, we go to our bathroom and use it like it was intended to be used. Ron is peeing in cups. And Ron's body is is weak. He's losing weight. It's showing all of the abuse that's coming. And when you're putting into your body urine or little to no food or spoiled food, whatever the case is, you're going to see that your body doesn't heal as fast from marks, bruises, abrasions, cuts, whatever. Ron's healing process has slowed tremendously. Even with him being at Mac's house and helping Mac out, he's still suffering the abuse from Dave and Shelly whenever they see fit. For Tori, when she found out that Ron was moving into Mac's house, things were supposed to get better. It was supposed to be better for Ron, but it wasn't. It kept getting worse and worse until February 9th of 2002. Mac fell, hitting his head and needing to go to the hospital. Shelly picks up Tori and they take off to the hospital. Shelly tells Tori, you know, Mac fell. It's not good. It's not looking good. We need to go to the hospital. We need to see what's going on. And Tori cries the entire way there because Mac meant something to her, just like Ron means something to her. They may not mean the same thing to her mother, but to her, if something happened to Mac, it would be heartbreaking. And when they get to the hospital, they learn that Mac had passed away from the injuries he sustained during the fall. According to Shelley, the only person that was there when he fell was Ron. And it's speculated that Shelley was behind Mac's death. But with the lack of evidence, it made it really difficult to put her there at the time of the fall. Now, Nikki, Sammy, and Tori, they all knew their mother was a part of this, whether she was there at the moment he fell or she put Ron up to it. Either way, Shelly was going to get what she wanted. Shelly stood to inherit $5,000 cash and Max approximate $140,000 home. But remember, she only gets that once his dog, Sissy, passes away. So now Sissy's alive. Shelly can't touch a dime. She can't touch anything. That dog is entitled to it before Shelly is. Shelly being flush with cash really put a chipper in her demeanor. But it didn't last very long because now she had to figure out how to get rid of this dog. Okay. And then... Ron needed to move back home because he had no business being at Max anymore. There was nobody to take care of. And now he needed to come home and he needed to do his chores back at the no-tick house. It wasn't long after Mac died that Shelly began accusing Ron of killing Mac. Tori could not believe that her uncle Ron would do something like that. But Ron was eventually beaten down so much by her constantly calling him a murderer that he eventually agrees saying, quote, you're right. I killed him. Please don't tell. Tori heard 50 different versions of how Ron killed Mac, but she couldn't see the kind-hearted person she knew Ron to be stand there and wait to call for help 
after Mac fell and hit his head. Tori knew somehow her mother was behind the hesitation to call for help. She just couldn't prove it. Tori was very strong-willed, okay? And she still is. I mean, she has to be to live through something like that and act the way she did towards her mother and, and regarding all of this stuff that she was watching as she grew up. To be that strong-willed then, she's really got to be extremely strong-willed now. And it's not that Nikki and Sammy were not strong-willed. It's not that. But they have been beaten down and their spirits were so far down, they could not see a way out. But Tori could. Tori made connections with people other than her mother quicker than one could imagine. And... Nikki was gone. Nikki left. Sammy's virtually out the door. Tori could do the same thing. She had seen it be done. Now it was her turn. Shelly eventually takes Sissy into the Monahole Landing home and she chains the dog up. And Sissy goes from being this spoiled dog and she's reduced to being abused by the same person that killed her owner. And Shelly needed the dog out of the way. Eventually, she tells the lawyers that Sissy had gotten out of the home and ran away before being struck by a car down the road. Sissy had died in the eyes of the lawyers. In reality, she was being locked away at Shelly's house, and she was doing this all to take what she, Shelly, thought Mac owed her all of this for all of the times that she had taken care of him. And now, it was her payday. Laura finally received a call that she had been waiting for day in and day out ever since she had heard that Mac died. Instead, the deputy told her there was nothing tying Shelley to the death of Mac. There had been nothing on the death of Kathy. There had been nothing on finding her grandson, Shane. Nothing was going to be done about her stepdaughter, Shelley Notek. Tori had heard so much negative things about her, uh, her older sister, Nikki, that she was a bad person. She was disrespectful. She never really tr truly loved Tori. And Sammy was the only connection that the sisters had. Nikki had finally found a man that loved her and loved her like she should be loved. And he showed her how life is supposed to be like. Poor Sammy had to sneak away from her mother's house to attend her eldest sister's wedding. Sammy was thrilled for her sister because she was genuinely happy. Shelly was not invited, obvious. Why would you invite, you know, your lifelong tormentor to the happiest day of your life? You don't. Neither Dave or Shelly knew anything about Nikki being married. And Sammy really wanted them at the wedding but, like I said, how can you invite your tormentor, your, the person who humiliated you, the person who berated you every single day of your childhood? Why would she let her steal the happiest day of her life? Sammy could not blame Nikki for not inviting them. But Sammy also could not rid herself of the feeling that her mother should be there. So Sammy had bought a ring for Shelly and Sammy wore it to the wedding. And it was a ring that had Shelly, Sammy, Nikki, and Tori's birthstones inset in it. And for Sammy, it was like her mother was there for her older sister on that day. 
Now, Nikki knew absolutely nothing about that. And I'm not sure if Shelly would have even, she probably would have came just to ruin the whole dang thing. You know, she probably would have been the one to stand up and say, these two shouldn't be married. She's this, 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 and this, and he's stupid for wanting to marry her. Or, you know, she's never going to love you. She cheats on you. Whatever. Digging into this case for as long as I have, I can almost, I almost feel like I can speculate what she would have said because you just have to think of the worst thing that could be said and it would be the best thing that Shelly could say does that she was downright evil downright evil and said the meanest thing she could just because nobody was going to talk back to her she did it because she could as Dave and Shelley began preparing for collecting the estate of Mac, and this meant that they could move out of Monahone Landing and into Pacific County, where everything would be better. The marriage between Dave and Shelley could get better. The only little detail, and everybody knew this detail, it was the elephant in the room was Ron. Despite Dave's love for his wife, he generally felt that he didn't deserve her love and he knew his marriage to her was doomed unless things changed. And when I say unless things changed, that meant unless Ron was out of their life. And so secretly, Dave goes to Ron and offers him some money for a bus ticket to get out of there. Dave tells him, I will take you to the bus. I will put you on a bus. I will give you money. You can go anywhere you want to. Just go. And Ron doesn't. Ron thinks this is a trap. You know, when Shane went and opened the door for Kathy out of the pole building, she didn't run because she felt like Shane was trapping her. She felt like Shelly had set something up to test whether or not Kathy was loyal to her. And when Dave went to Ron, virtually Ron felt the same way. This is a trap. Why would I take this? Shelly is testing this. And if I do this, I can't imagine what the, what the repercussion is going to be. And so Ron says, no, I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm here for Shelly. The Notex inheriting the estate of Max ended up more problematic than Shelly would expect. Because people in Raymond and Pacific County were questioning whether or not the Notex deserved Max's estate. So there was question because Shelly didn't come into Max's life until the end. And then shortly after she was in his life, he goes and he has this fall and he dies. And Shelly doesn't have the best reputation. They know who she is. They know that she's a mean person. They know that she will cause trouble wherever she goes. They're not dumb. They're just not as enlightened to what Shelly's capable of just yet. The sheriff at the Pacific County knew something was off about this whole situation. He knew something wasn't right, but he couldn't quite put his finger on what it was. So all of this questioning, all this speculation, all this scrutiny, it just pushed Shelly and pushed. And she became pissed and stressed. And there was only one way she knew of to get rid of all of this pent-up anger 
and aggression and frustration, and that was Ron Woodworth. Ron was constantly being blamed for the murder of Mac. Shelley would tell him time and time again the police were going to figure out that he killed him, and then they were going to come for Ron. And here's the kicker. Any time that Shelley and Ron would be out in the car and they saw a police cruiser, Ron would actively slide down in his chair and, and lower himself below the dash so that his face couldn't be seen by the officer in the cruiser. And every time there was a knock at the door, Shelley was telling Ron to go and hide and not don't make a sound. Go. Just go. So, I mean, Shelly is telling people that she doesn't want Ron there. He's overstayed his welcome. She's mad because he killed her Mac, her dad, in her eyes. Uh, you know, she blames Ron for all of this stuff. But when the, there's a knock at the door and Shelly's like, oh, my God, that could be the police. Go hide. Why are you hiding him? Why are you helping him? That's because she's got you underneath her thumb just where she wants you. And she is going to control you for as long as you're going to let her. So Ron's friend Sandra had offered for Ron to come and live with her when he moved out of his mother's trailer. The trailer got repossessed and his mother had to move and Ron had to move. And this is how Ron ended up in Shelly's house. But first, before he moved in with Shelly, his friend Sandra, who had been really good friends with, offered, you know, to, for Ron to come and live with her and she would help him get a job and help him get back on his feet because Gary had just left him. Him and his mom had just lost this trailer. Ron's spirits were down, but he, you know, Ron was adamant. Shelly's going to help me. I get to go stay with her. Okay, so towards the end of Ron's life, Sandra moves back to the area. And she pesters Shelly over and over and over until they all get together for like a lunch. And Sandra sits down across from her once best friend and cannot believe that the person sitting in front of her is her friend Ron. He looks awful. You know, he can barely make eye contact. He can barely stay on the train of thought that he was on. He's just sitting there with no life behind his eyes. And Shelly is being Shelly. She's yelling at the waiter. She's being demanding, you know, how she is. Shelly keeps telling Sandra that Ron is on this medication. He's taking it for his depression because he's still down about Gary leaving. And so the doctors put him on this medication to help with the depression and to help with some of the headaches that Ron was starting to experience. I should say that all of that is in quotation marks because none of that is true. The way Shelley controls people once she tears down who they are is then she starts to feed them with medication that they don't know what it is. Now, the kids have found out that some of it is a muscle relaxer and some of it is Xanax, both of which will allow the person taking them to have a judgment that is clouded and they just kind of go along with what, what's going on. And this is perfect for somebody who wants complete and total control. So at this lunch, Ron takes this medication. From that point on, there is no more having a clear, concise conversation with Ron. Sandra couldn't keep him on topic. He slipped into this 
brain fog and it was like speaking to a brick wall. None of the words were registering to him. It was clear to Sandra from that point that Ron's health was in serious trouble and he was oblivious to what was going on. Sammy has decided to confront her mother regarding Ron's appearance. And she asks Shelly, you know, is he sick? You know, what's what's going on? Sammy didn't come right out and say, Mom, are you abusing Ron? This was her way of kind of beating around the bush to get to the same end. In the end, Sammy knew her mother was to blame, but Sammy couldn't bring herself to call her mother out. So Shelly tells Sammy, you know, no, he's, he's in the best shape of his life. You know, he was fat when he first came here and now we've cut out all the junk food and he builds his muscles by doing yard work and he really likes to do that. And Shelly's like, no, there's nothing wrong with the way Ron is right now. And Sammy takes it at face value. But this is not where Ron's appearance stops changing. Ron was very flamboyant. And I say this because he had a very vain sense about his appearance. He wore this lavish jewelry. Most of it reflected to the Egyptology that he loved to study and he loved to live life by. But he also had this ponytail. And he took really good care of it. He was thinning on the top, but the rest of his hair was long enough. He always had it drawn back in this ponytail. And so just like with Kathy, Shelly decides, I'm going to take just that last little bit away from you being who you are. And she cuts off his ponytail. Now, had Ron been the person he had been when he first moved into the no-tech home, there probably would have been some disappointment in the haircut. But with the complete and total mind control that Shelly does, at this point, he tells everybody that he likes his hair better that way anyways. You know, it looks better for, on me. And it seems like this last change to his appearance was what really sealed Ron's fate. I mean, she had this sense of knowing where that last line was and when to cross it, what the perfect moment was to cross it. In 2003, Pacific County Sheriff's Department Deputy Jim Bergstrom went out to the no-tech home. He was going to serve a restraining order against Ron from his mother because the berate of letters are still coming at this point. He is still Shelly still makes him sit down and write these god-awful letters to his mother. And Deputy Bergstrom, he's out here and he's going to serve this restraining order against Ron. When he pulls into the driveway, he gets a quick glance at Ron. But once Ron sees the deputy, he takes off. He like bolts. He's gone. And the deputy gets out of his cruiser and he's yelling at Ron that, you know, I'm just here to serve you papers. It's okay. You know, why, where are you running? And But Ron is convinced that the deputy is there to arrest him for the murder of Mac. So Bergstrom, once he can't coax Ron to come back, knocks on the front door. He knows someone is home. He can hear someone being at home. But nobody comes and answers the door. Okay. So he eventually leaves. He never, you know, couldn't coax Ron to come back and, and sign for this paperwork that he had to serve him with. And nobody was willing to open the front door. 
So Shelly calls out to the deputy office and she wants to know who came out to her home and what for. And they tell her that Bergstrom was just out there to serve a restraining order. And Shelly goes, have him meet me at the post office here in Raymond. Okay. Shelly meets up with Deputy Bergstrom. And Deputy tells him, you know, I need to serve these restraining order papers to Ron. And Shelly very quickly says, Ron does not live with me anymore. He lives in Tacoma. And Bergstrom looks at her and says, I don't like being lied to. I know Ron is at your house. I saw him at your house. When I was there, not even an hour ago. Now, do you want to tell me the truth? And Shelly kind of just hem-haws and hem-haws. And she throws out the next thing that she knows how to use. And it's the empathy card. But, you know, she's over this whole I have cancer thing. So that's the good news. Instead, she says that she's taking care of Ron because he has all these warrants out for his arrest. And he has a heart condition. And she, she tells Bergstrom, you know, I promise I'll have Ron give you a call. For whatever reason, this goes over. After Shelly promises to have Ron call him, Bergstrom asks the very magical question. He asks if Shelly has heard anything from Kathy Loreno. He says her family is worried and she is still out in the wind. Nobody in her family has heard a word from her. And this shakes Shelly to her core. She goes home after her meeting with Bergstrom and promising to have Ron call. And the first person she encounters is Sammy. And Shelly tests the waters with her daughter. And see if she still remembers the story that she is supposed to say when asked about Kathy. And Shelly says, oh, you know, I ran into Kathy's mom today at the store and we had this real pleasant conversation. And Sammy immediately knew that when she brought up Kathy's name, what was fixing to come? And then the questions start rolling in. And Shelly asks Sammy if she still remembers Kathy's boyfriend's name. And there it is. The magical question for Sammy and the pop quiz begins. And she says, you know, yeah, it's Rocky. And then in rapid fire, Shelly is firing these questions at her about Kathy and Rocky and the story that they made up after Shelly tortured Kathy to death. I'm sorry, where Kathy choked on her vomit and died. Shelly had no part in that. That was sarcastic. Just throwing that out there. If it wasn't obvious. On April 18th of 2003, Shelly's, she pulling into the driveway and she gets the mail and she's sitting in the car and she's kind of digging through the mail and she's looking either for the check from her husband or some catalog full of crap that she doesn't need, can't afford, has no space for. And she opens up this letter and in a typewriter font, it reads, the gunshots you heard last night were from Kathy. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, she has also arose from the dead and is back to revenge you. Ashes to ashes. Tori was the closest person to her mother after she received the letter and she sees the impact it has on her. And there had been gunshots the night before. One of the neighbors had one of their security floodlights shot out and nobody 
thought anything of it. It's a very royal community, you know. I mean, this this home this that the no-techs are living in kind of sets a little bit off the road. There's not, we're not, you know, acre pieces of land with just right next to each other where the property lines are a mere six foot. There's distance between them. And so to hear gunshots, you didn't think anything of it until you get this letter. Shelly begins to demand to know if anybody, any person has come around the house and has asked anything about Kathy. And Tori says no. And she stands her ground. She's like, Mom, nobody has said anything about Kathy. Why are we talking about this? The coincidence of it all is just really freaking Shelly out. And she calls Dave and tells him about what is going on. But neither one of them suspects Nikki in this. And I, you know, if Nikki did this, applause to you, girl. Seriously, way to shake your mom to her core. I applaud you. Bow down. Thank Jesus for what you did. Because this is what sets Shelly into this erratic behavior that ultimately leads to her own demise. Shelly then calls the school where Sammy is teaching at. Because at this point, Sammy's gone through college. She has her teaching degree. She is teaching school. And she makes them go get Sammy out of class and have her take her mother's phone call as it is an emergency of the highest priority because it's Shelly. And Sammy gets on the phone and Shelly asks her, has anything, has anybody asked you about Kathy? Sammy's like, no, why are you even asking? I'm busy. I'm trying to teach class. And her mom tells her about this letter that she got in the mail and then about the gunshots that were heard the night before and Sammy goes on high alert as well. And deep down, Sammy knows that Kathy and her family, they deserve justice for Kathy. Even if that meant that her mother would go down for it, she knows they deserve it. But she can't help but feel this panic. And, you know, I could speculate that the reason she feels so on edge and so panicked is because she's afraid that they may come in and try to pin her with helping her mother cover up this murder or the fact that she may lose her mother for to prison or to the death penalty, whatever it is. That's where this panic is coming from. Not so much that somebody is saying something about Kathy. It's more about what may happen if they figure out what happened to Kathy. The stress of the unknown and why all of a sudden this talk about Kathy, it makes Shelly meaner than she was before. And Ron was there to take the brunt of the abuse that came from this wild mean streak from this erratic Shelly. And his weakness in his physical appearance and abilities rears its ugly head and he falls off the roof after he was up there cleaning the shingles. Now, I've never heard of a company that's like, hey, do you need your shingles cleaned? I'll get up there and I'll mop them and dust them. You know, it's just not, you know, generally if somebody's on your roof messing with the shingles, they're either patching a hole, fixing something from a storm, replacing something that was ripped away, or re-roofing your home completely. But Ron's up there 
dusting them off, I guess. I don't know. And he falls. And Dave and Shelly, they were outside yelling at Ron after he fell from the roof. And Tori watches her parents. They're not helping him. They're yelling at him. And then eventually he is told to get up and go do it again. And Ron gets up on the banister of the deck, like the railing, and he stands up and he holds on to a support beam as he's standing there with no shoes on, no socks on, no pants, just his underwear, no shirt, nothing. And he jumps into the gravel driveway and lands on his feet. And it's this jump that ultimately causes him to either break his leg or break his ankle or cause a fracture and not to mention that it probably shoved a million little pebbles of gravel into the the skin of his feet he lays there in pain and tori watches her uncle ron take on one of the most brutal punishments since the the iced heel with Kathy. These two punishments that both of these people have endured are something so sinister that I could do a random generator a hundred different times and never come up with this. This is just awful. And just to imagine what that looks like, just as an outsider looking in, breaks my heart. But Ron gets up. Not as fast as Dave and Shelly are telling him to, but he gets up and he does it again. Tori can hear him from inside of the house with each impact into the gravel driveway and the the sheer pain that belts out of Ron makes her skin crawl. This form of punishment quickly becomes Shelly's favorite form for Ron from this point on in his life. Ron is made to climb up onto that deck banister and jump into the driveway over and over and over. His feet are split open and they are bleeding and they... He pleads with Shelly to let him stop. But for Shelly, she's got to get... She has to find a way to get rid of the stress that's coming from this all of a sudden mention of Kathy from... you know, a sheriff's deputy. She's freaked out that she may go down for murder. She hasn't technically collected on Max stuff just yet. Dave is not making enough money. They're, they're drowning in the hole that she dug for them. And Ron just happens to be on the receiving end of this. Shelly does treat his feet. Um, She boils a pot of water and bleach. And then she takes it out to the pole building where Ron is made to sleep when he is being bad, and she forces his feet down into the boiling water. With each treatment of his open wounds, Ron stinks more and more of decaying flesh as his feet are cut open. He's not healing nowhere near as fast as he needs to be healing from these cracks and this this just abuse on his feet and then the boiling water are causing second and third degree burns which is causing his flesh to peel away. Ron is literally rotting as he 
lays there in the pole building. Shelley eventually gives in and she wraps his feet with some cloth, but his condition is getting worse and worse. And Shelley finally sees this pattern repeating. And in 2003, she calls Dave completely worried about Ron's condition. And the couple begin to plan out dropping Ron off at a homeless shelter. But with the manipulation that Shelley had dished out over the couple years that Ron had been there, he was in fear of getting arrested for murder. He was in fear of being arrested for all the warrants he supposedly had out for himself. He wanted to stay with Shelley. That was more favorable than maybe going to prison. Shelley then tells Dave that one day Ron tried to kill himself by jumping from a branch in the tree out back so he wouldn't have to go to the homeless shelter. And she tells Dave that she can't take him there. He will kill himself if they take him to the homeless shelter. And so Ron stays. Whether I believe Shelley feared that Ron may die, whether that fear was sincere or not, it's not the point. I will assert that I think this was all some sort of ploy to, to those who may believe what she had to say. Shelly is very good at taking a sane person and flipping logic around and making them believe something completely irrational. And so I don't know for sure if they ever really did talk about plan on taking him to the homeless shelter. I'm not for sure if he really did try to kill himself after the talk of going to the homeless shelter. I'm not sure of any of that because I'm so fearful that if it came from Shelley's mouth, it's not the truth. And for Ron, for those to be his last moments in life, that's hard. It's hard to hear. It's hard to hear that somebody out there is going through the same thing that Kathy Loreno did. Soon, Shelly moves Ron to Mac's house, which she has access to, and this is in an effort to get Ron to be better. When Tori notices that he's gone, she asks her mother, you know, where did he go? And Shelly tells him, tells Tori that she took Ron over to Max so he could rest and he could get better. But the gravel driveway sat just below Tori's window. She never heard Shelly leave. Tori heard every time somebody pulled up into that driveway. It was right outside her bedroom. She never once heard her mother leave. Soon, Shelly began threatening to disown Tori if she ever told anyone, especially Sammy, about what's going on with Ron. And this just confused Tori even more. Then came a cover story. Tori was to say that Ron was living in Tacoma. But inside of Tori, the storm of the century was forming. She'd had enough. She was done with her mother, and the reign of Shelley Notek was going to end at the hands of her youngest daughter. Tori began pushing her mother. She was wanting to see Ron for herself. But a part of me thinks that Tori knew what had happened. She was just wanting her mother to fess up to it. And Shelley always had a way of putting things off. She told Tori that, you know, she was seeing Ron every day, sometimes twice a day, but Tori knew better. Like I said, that gravel driveway was just outside her bedroom window. She had not heard her mother leave. So where, when was she going to see Ron? You know, there was no way her mother was getting up early. Her mother stayed up all night. So she, that meant she slept in. 
So where was her mom going to see Ron? When was this occurring? Because Tori, she never saw her mother leave. Soon the chores that Ron was doing around the house fell onto Tori. And then it began that Tori wasn't doing them good enough, that Ron did them better. Tori was lazy and worthless and God only knows what else she told that poor child. But she didn't have Ron there to berate. She didn't, she didn't have somebody to take her frustrations out because Ron wasn't there. Tori was the only one home. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, Shelly calls up Sammy. And she tells Sammy that Tori is coming to stay with her in Seattle for the weekend. She's not coming to stay for very long. And Sammy is thrilled because that means that Tori and Nikki are going to see each other for the first time in a decade. Whether, you know, come hell or high water, it was happening. And Tori knew going to see her sister meant she was going to sleep in a bed. Shouldn't have to worry about somebody coming in and yanking the covers off of her and demanding she get up in the middle of the night. She didn't have to put this god-awful powder all over herself. She could take a bath. She could use hot water. She'd go to the restroom when she needed to go to the restroom. So they were excited. Sammy met up with Shelly about the halfway point, and they went out to eat for dinner. And when she got out of the car and she saw her mother, she immediately noticed how unkept she was. Shelly has always been somebody who kept up with her parents very well. But when she stepped out of the car, her hair is a crazy mess. She didn't brush it. It's kind of dirty. And something's wrong with Shelly's hand. Her thumb on her right hand is about two times the size it should have been. And Sammy notices these things immediately in her mother. She's more irritable. She's yelling at the, you know, the wait staff again. Her thumb hurts. She's deflecting questions. But in the end... Sammy was over the moon that her baby sister was there. So Shelly goes back home and Sammy and Tori, they go to Seattle and Sammy's like, I'm going to take you out and you're going to try sushi and then we're going to meet Nikki tomorrow. And immediately Tori withdraws. She doesn't want to see Nikki because Nikki doesn't love her. You know, Nikki's a bad person. The only memory she has of Nikki are those that Shelly put into her mind. But it doesn't matter. Come hell or high water, Sammy, the one who has lived on both sides of the line, is going to get her sisters together, all three of them for the first time in almost 10 years. When they finally met up for lunch, Tori was terrified. How was she going to hide this encounter from her mother? As soon as she got home, she knew that Shelly would know something is up. She wouldn't be able to lie to her mother because Shelly had this way of just knowing you were lying. And they, they say usually the best lie detector is a liar. On July 22nd of 2003, Dave was awakened with a phone call in the middle of the night. And it was the one he didn't want. He needed to come home. It's about Ron. Dave knew that Tori went to Seattle and now was the best time to take care of this situation. Dave had been married to Shelly for 15 years and he knew when she called, it was because something was bad. Supposedly, 
Ron was found dead after sitting on the back porch, letting air get to his wounds and his feet. Shelley said that he had died in the heat wave, and she drug his body to the pole barn, dressed him up in a new pair of sweats that he was not allowed to wear any other time. She then put him inside of two sleeping bags, removed all of the stuff on the deep freezer, put Ron into the deep freezer, closed it, put the stuff back on top of it, so that it didn't look like anything was touched. And then that's when Shelly calls Sammy and says, hey, Tori's coming to hang out with you for a little bit. And then calls Dave and was like, hey, get home. <laughs> I did it again. They had gotten away with murder. They'd already killed Kathy. Dave had killed Shane. They had gotten away with two murders. How the hell are they supposed to get away with a third? But Dave goes home. And he tells his wife to go inside and clean herself up. He will take care of this. Here's the problem with Ron dying at the time that he did. Raymond Washington was in a burn ban. That meant that Dave couldn't make his homemade crematorium and cremate Ron the same he did with Kathy and Shane. And the barn that, remember Nikki had to paint with a one-inch paintbrush? It no longer stood in the place that it did. So there was no shelter from the street to the burn pit. So Dave had to get creative. He planned out a shallow grave just where the burn pit had been. And since he was in construction, he knew he could take care of digging this. <clears throat> so Dave dug down about three to four foot to the point where the earth, the dirt could no longer be easily, easily shoveled away. And so he felt he was far enough down that it would be okay. And he had laid this tarp out before he started digging this grave and shoveled the dirt onto the tarp so that when he put Ron in and covered him back up, you couldn't tell that like a huge pile of dirt had been laying in the grass. Everything kind of looked the way it should have because the burn pit, there was nothing there. And there didn't need to be any unnecessarily huge amounts of dirt in the grass. Because then you'd be like, there was a dirt pile there. So Dave knew what he was doing. He gets Ron out of the freezer. He rolls him up in this plastic sheeting he had stole from one of the construction sites he was working on. And he puts Ron down into the, into the ground and covers him up. Because his thinking is, as soon as the burn band's lifted, I'll come home, dig him up, and then I'll cremate him. Well, back to Tori in Seattle. She is stressing that she's not going to be able to hide the fact that she got to see Nikki. And Sammy is trying to calm her fears down. And she's, you know, she decides to start telling her of her childhood. Okay. She's like, oh, well, you know, mom's not that bad. She used to do this with me. And Tori says, yeah, mom does that with me too. And then she says, well, does she do this? And Tori's like, yeah, mom does that to me too. And as they're going along and Sammy's trying to say, you know, how bad off her and Nikki had their childhood and that Tori should, you know, be thankful that Shelly's not being this way to her. She learns her mother is doing exactly the same thing to Tori that she did to Nikki and Sammy. 
And this is the straw that breaks Sammy's back. She decides that she needs to call Nikki and they get to talking and they talk with Tori and they tell Tori that if Shelly says that Ron went anywhere, it meant that he was dead. And this broke Tori's heart because it meant that all of the abuse that Shelly had rained down on Ron's head was the reason he died. Nikki learns that, you know, her mother has possibly killed for a third time. Well, at this point, the, the girls have no idea what happened to Shane. They think he's in Alaska. So Sammy and Nikki now think their mother have killed a second person. Okay. Mac doesn't really count. There's no evidence to put her there. And they discuss how they're going to handle this. And back in 2001, Nikki went to the police department of Pacific County and she told them everything about Kathy. And because they could never get a hold of Sammy to corroborate her story, well, they never did anything about it. But now there's another person. So they talked and they, you know, at this point, Tori's 14. In four years, she can get out. And they talk about whether or not that's plausible because both of them made it to being 18. There was no doubt that Tori would make it. But Tori says she's not going to make it. She says, I can't do it anymore. In the end, Nikki and Sammy talk Tori into going back home. They need her to go home. They need her to act like nothing happened in Seattle. And they were going to figure this out. So Tori's having this hard time knowing that she's going to have to get back into the car with her mother and go home to the house where Ron is possibly dead. Shelly is falling apart as Dave's outside dealing with her latest body. And usually the dominating matriarch has control of the situation. But at this point, Dave has control of the situation. He comes back in after burying the body and he says, you know, Ron had been staying at Max's house and while staying there, he went out and he was looking for a job. And when he couldn't find one, Dave and Shelly gave him money for a bus fare and Ron took off to San Diego. Okay. Well, Shelly starts to perk up and she's giddy about what her husband is doing. She's like, yeah, no, he, he talked to me. He wanted to go to San Diego. And so the plan is made, right? And then Shelly's like, well, here's the backup plan. Ron killed himself because he was still really depressed over Gary leaving him if no one believes that he went to San Diego. So the story's set, right? Shelly gets in the car. She goes and she meets Sammy halfway to pick up her youngest daughter, Tori. And she notices immediately that Sammy and Tori look like they've been crying they hug longer than they had before and she's starting to pick up on this something's wrong so Shelly asks Tori what's going on and Tori she deflects her mom's questions she's just like she just says you know she's sad to see Sammy go because they had a really fun weekend they had sushi and they did this that and the other and she's really selling the story to her mother and then when her mother tries to give her a hug when they get home, she feeds her mother her tried and true signature card that Shelly's used time and time again. Tori says, I have a headache. And she plays the empathy card. So now Shelly's really starting to shake. Things are starting to fall apart. And she's not sure how much longer she can keep this all together. When Tori asks about Ron, 
Shelly said Ron got a job. Tori knew immediately that Ron was dead. When Tori complained of her headache again, Shelly gave her youngest daughter two yellow tablets. And when Shelly went to bed that night, Tori got up and she called Sammy. And she told Sammy about telling their mom that she had a headache and her mom gave her two yellow pills, but got mad because she only took one of them. Sammy gets to thinking and she remembers the time that her mother, that Shelly gave her two yellow pills. When she took them, she found out she was given muscle relaxers and couldn't stand up and Shane had to help her. She immediately instructs Tori to go and throw up. Go get that out of your system right now. Go throw it up. Once she realizes what her mother really gave her, that's when Tori lays down the law of the land. And she's like, I'm not waiting till I'm 18. Get me out now. So Tori sets out the next day at the no-tech home looking for evidence that Ron's dead. And she finds his underwear and the cloth from his feet. And she heads out over to the burn pit after learning that's how they disposed of Kathy's body. And she sees that there's ashes. So she takes the cloth in Ron's underwear and she hides it and she gets some ashes and she takes off. She's collecting evidence. That way, if the police come, she'll have all this stuff for them. As Tori is outside doing her chores or methodically planning out this chain of evidence, Shelly's sitting on the couch and she's filling out change of address forms for Ron. And she doesn't have an address in San Diego. So what does she do? She writes down that he moved to Tacoma completely going against what Dave had set up. On August 6th of 2003, Sammy and Nikki drove down to Pacific County Sheriff's Department and they talked with Deputy Jim Bergstrom. This is the first time Sammy has sat down with him and this is the second time that Nikki has sat down with him and the stories that they tell him are unbelievable. And then they tell them about every detail they can of when Shane ran away. And Nikki closes off the interview with this. If Ron is dead, you could have stopped it. Deputy Bergstrom has nothing to say. He swallows the lump in his throat and he stays quiet. And Nikki and Sammy, they finish up their stories with the deputy and with prosecutors and they go home to Seattle. They're beaten, they're battered, they're broken, and they're exhausted. And their fight is far from over. It wouldn't be over until they could get Tori out of that house. So when they got home, Nikki, she couldn't settle down. She couldn't go to sleep. The not knowing what was happening was keeping her from being able to just close her eyes and get a little bit of rest. So she calls the one person that she knows she can trust, the one she leans on, and that's her Nana Laura. And when Laura doesn't answer the phone... She shoots her an email and she says, quote, you need to call me. I was in Raymond until 1 a.m. last night. CPS is taking Tori out of the house this a.m. at 8. Mother and Dave did something very bad again. I was with Pacific County Prosecutor and Sammy came with me. That night, Tori calls Nikki. Tori decides that she needs to know what's happening. And Nikki could only tell her, we're getting you out I promise. But the next day came and went, and Shelly still sat on the couch, acting like she had done nothing wrong. Tori told Sammy she hid some of Ron's clothes and stuff in the chicken coop, 
and then Tori sat down and wrote a note to those who were going to be coming into the home, tearing the house apart, looking for all that they could to prosecute her mother. And it wrote, Dear FBI, police, etc. Please don't ruin all of my things when you're investigating. Nothing of interest is here anyways. Please leave all of my personal belongings alone. Please find the animals good homes. The next day, the knock at the door that Tori had been expecting. Tori stands by the front door, not wanting to be eager for what awaits her on the other side. She watches as Deputy Jim Bergstrom, the man she recognized for being at her home before, walks up and tells a very nervous Shelley that he and the CPS caseworkers were there for Tori. Bergstrom follows Tori up the stairs so she can get a change of clothing, and Tori leans in with this message for him. You need to get a search warrant and come back. In the pole building, there's a bunch of Ron stuff. I'm pretty sure my parents are going to burn all of it. I put some of the stuff in the chicken coop to hide it. Then Tori later tells another officer about the two yellow pills her mother had tried to give her and how angry her mother was when she would only take one. Tori would repeat what was going on at Monahone Landing, minimizing what had happened to her and trying to focus them on what happened to Ron. Sammy sat staring at her phone as her mother's number appeared. She knew exactly what this call was about. When she answers, Shelly immediately screams at Sammy and she couldn't figure out why they had come in and taken Tori on the accusation of child abuse. Sammy plays dumb. Once Shelly is unsatisfied with what she can get out of Sammy, Sammy picks up the phone and calls Nikki. Their baby sister was safe and whatever turmoil their mother suffered with, the fact that they had taken Tori was all well-deserved. Shelly calls Nikki next, screaming that her baby had been ripped from her arms. And again, her daughter plays dumb. But it's after this phone call that Nikki's resolve starts to fade, and she starts to really question if whether or not her and Sammy had done the right thing. And she emails her Nana again. This time, her Nana sends her with an immediate response. Laura has now been talking to deputies and prosecutors, and they have stressed that Sammy and Nikki need to cut off all communication with Shelly. But the most important thing is they are not to fall for Shelly's bullshit anymore. It's over. Dave is now home. He drove bat out of hell to get home. His baby had been removed from the home. Shelly didn't know why. Sammy didn't know why. Nikki didn't know why. Nobody knew why CPS came in and took Tori. This time, Dave decides to take matters in his own hand, and he is going to go and see his daughter down at the deputy sheriff's office. And Shelly gives him this bag of stuff to take to Tori, and inside that bag, she sneaks two notes on post-its that says, what's going on? And did you say anything? At this point, not only have all three of Shelly's daughters been singing like canaries, so was her stepmother. And Kathy's mother is now putting ads in local newspapers looking for her missing daughter. Dave walks into Pacific County Sheriff's Office looking for his daughter. And when he's unable to find her, the police ask if Dave would consent to an interview. Well, Dave says, sure. He can't think of any reason not to. 
Tori hasn't been abused. She's been she's been punished, yes, but not abused. And he walked right into their trap. And he expected questions about Tori and the abuse that she had suffered. Instead, he got questions that did have nothing to do with Tori. They wanted to know what happened to Kathy Loreno and Ron Woodworth. Dave stands his ground for a little bit, okay? But he's a man who doesn't sleep very often, who he's been, he himself has been living poorly. And he just, he, he needs a moment to gather his thoughts. So he asks if he can go down to the restroom and go to the bathroom. And the, the deputies are like, yeah, and they follow him down. Dave turns to them right before he enters the, the bathroom door and he breaks, telling officers where they can find Ron's body. And then he tells them what he did with Kathy's body. Dave and Shelly Notek are finally caught. Shelly was picked up at Mac's house. She was completely ignorant to what her husband had been doing down at the, the county deputy's office. Ironically, the couple were arrested and booked on August 8, 2003. That was Kathy's birthday. The day after Dave and Shelly were arrested, Sammy tried to celebrate her birthday, but news titles rang out one after another on the TV in the restaurant where they were about Kathy, Ron, and Sammy's parents. And her boyfriend, Kaylee, who she'd been dating since high school, decided they would leave. And they drove home and Laura called. Dave had confessed to killing Shane. And it's at this point that Sammy loses everything. The hope that Nikki and Sammy had that Shane had finally gotten out and he finally got away from their mother. And they, he really was in Alaska. He was there. He was married. He was happy. He was, had a family. It was all gone in a matter of words. Nikki wrestled with the morning that she had gone to her mother after Kathy's death and told her about the photographs that Shane had. Why did she do it? Could she remember why she felt the urge to speak up? And most importantly, did that mean that she was responsible for his death? And Nikki, if you do listen to this, you are in no way responsible for anything that occurred to you or to Shane or to Sammy or to Tori. You did everything you could. Everything. As the local media is broadcasting the story after story after story of the horrors that are coming out of the Notex home, the community is eaten up with this sinister story and they are talking about it. The, the rumors and the gossip are spreading like wildfire. But the three Notex girls, they're silent and they've said nothing until now. Two weeks after being removed from the House of Horror, Sammy gains conservatorship of her youngest sister, Tori. And it's at that point that all three sisters are back together again. And this time, Shelly would never break their bond. From a small 8 by 8 cell, Shelly wielded her power with her middle child. She needed specific things as she was locked up waiting on her trial specific to exactly what she asked for, and she can manipulate Sammy through written words in her letters. And unfortunately, Sammy caved until she finally saw what her mother was doing. 
she didn't pick Sammy because she was her favorite, but because Shelly deemed her the weakest, as she was always wanting to please her mother. On February 3rd, 2004, Dave Notak pleaded his first-degree murder charge down to a second-degree murder charge and entered a modified guilty plea to the charge of criminal assistance. This modified guilty plea was called an Alford plea. It meant that the evidence that the state had would be enough for Dave to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. However, Dave was maintaining his innocence as well. On August 26, 2004, Dave was sentenced to 15 years in prison. In 2016, Dave was released from prison after serving 13 years of the 15-year sentence. Dave still has contact with his daughter Tori and his stepdaughter Sammy. Nikki refuses to have any contact with him. He has a job working long hours in a seafood processing plant. On June 20th of 2004, Michelle Shelley Notek entered her Alford plea for the deaths of Kathy Loreno and Ron Woodworth. The deal was for a 17-year sentence. However, Judge Mark McCauley said that more time was needed for him to go over the plea deal. On August 18, 2004, Shelley was sentenced to 22 years in prison, five more than the deal was set for. Shelley did enter up an appeal stating that she was not made aware of all of the details that went inside of the Alford plea that she had made. Thankfully, Washington Court of Appeals denied her appeal. Shelley is still up to her manipulative ways. She is said to be in a cell by herself as she has easily manipulated cellmates in the past to give her their food, their commissary, and more. Shelley is set to be released from prison in 2022 on the basis of good behavior. She will be 68 years old. Nikki, Sammy, and Tori counted down the years until their mother would walk free. And the thing all three worried about was that she would be able to do this to someone else. The sisters... The survivors of Shelly Notek came together and decided they were no longer going to sit back quietly and let their mother possibly repeat the past. Greg Olson sat down with those who were willing to talk about what life was like with Shelly. Did he have an inkling of the horrendous story he was going to write? The true crime book, If You Tell, a true story of murder, family secrets, and the unbreakable bond of sisterhood was pinned. The world needs to know exactly who Shelley Notek is. Her story skated under the line of infamy as she pleaded out, keeping the gory details investigators and witnesses knew away from a televised court proceeding. The Alford plea may have been the loophole for both Dave and Shelley, allowing them to step foot back into the free world but the sisters had their own loophole a best-selling author and a nation hungry for true crime i want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we wrapped up the horror that was life with shelly the story is not one that ends with justice finally being served 
Had Shelly and Dave gone to trial, it is very possible both would have died behind the cinder block walls. Kathy, Shane, and Ron all died behind the walls of Monahone Landing, a choice they didn't get to make. Was justice served? No matter which side you stand on, none of us will disagree on the fact that everyone needs to know Shelly Notek so no one can fall victim to her again. As always, I will leave you with one last line. Being able to survive doesn't mean it was ever okay. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>